Section 92 of Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Insurance Companies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Paul Hampton. Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies An Authentic Record of Remarkable Cases by John B. Lewis and Charles C. Baumbaugh. Section 92. Self-Mutilation and Accident Insurance, Part 2. W.H.H. of Everett, Nebraska, aged 33 years, $12,000 accident insurance. His statement is, I was out hunting December 19, 1894, and was tripped by a stick getting between my legs, causing me to fall when my gun discharged, shooting my left hand, so that it was amputated at the wrist. On investigation, it was ascertained that this man was a general good-for-nothing, shiftless, and never worked steadily. He had obtained $45 weekly indemnity on an accident ticket in May previous, and his claim at that time was looked upon with suspicion by the insurance company. At the time of purchasing one of the insurance tickets just before shooting off his hand, he told the agent he was going to Mexico for his health. Accident insurance amounting to $25,000 distributed among five different companies was taken out by J.B. of Springfield, Massachusetts, and not long afterwards he sustained seriously bodily injuries, which, he states under oath, were caused in the following manner. On the morning of February 18, 1895, between the hours of 2 and 2.30 a.m., I received injuries which resulted in the loss of my right hand and wrist and left foot and ankle. I went to the railroad station in Springfield for the purpose of taking the train which leaves at 2.20 a.m. via the NYNH and H Railroad. I was going to South Norwalk, Connecticut on business. I entered the day coach and took my seat. I found the air of the coach somewhat close and arose from my seat and passed out of the rear of the car for the purpose of getting a seat in one of the sleepers which were in the rear. While passing from the platform of the day coach to the platform of the sleeper, I either slipped or stumbled, which I cannot tell, and was thrown or fell from the platform to the ground, I think from the platform of the sleeper, both gates on the platform of the car from which I fell or was thrown being open. In some way, but just in what way I cannot tell, I was drawn under the trucks of the sleeper. The wheels of one or both sleepers passed over and crushed my right hand and left foot. At the time I fell or was thrown from the platform, the train was moving slowly. The injuries which I received were so severe that it was necessary to amputate both my hand and foot, the hand being amputated a few inches above the wrist and the foot a few inches above the ankle joint. Under the policies he held, he was entitled to the full principal sum insured, $25,000, if the facts were as set forth in his affidavit and also entitled to such damages as he might be able to recover from the railway company. A very careful investigation of this case was made. It was ascertained that the train in question was the regular night express from Boston to New York, and that it reached Springfield that night on time. It consisted of a baggage car, smoking car, ordinary passenger car, and two sleeping cars. The tracks run nearly east and west in front of the Springfield passenger station, which station is on the south side. At that point, the track is perfectly straight, in as perfect condition in every respect as it is possible for a track to be laid, 
and there can be no jolt or jar of a train in moving over those rails, which could be attributed to any defect or faulty construction of the roadbed. That particular train has been running for a long while, and it customarily stops in pretty nearly the same spot on arrival in Springfield. The extreme variation found after repeated observations did not exceed 20 feet, and the average was less than half of that distance. If the train stopped on the night in question, according to its usual custom, the forward truck of the first sleeper stood just where the injured man was found lying after the train had passed. He says that he left the coach in which he had been sitting and walked out the rear door to enter the sleeper. The train was then on its way to New York. Presumably, it moved faster than he walked, and with every step he took, the train was taking him further away from the station. By the time he could have reached the car platforms and have fallen under the trucks, he would have been many feet distance from the place where he was found. At that time of night, there are few or no passengers either to leave or enter the train at Springfield. The car platforms are provided with gates. On arrival at Springfield, the gates on the south side of train were opened by the brakeman, while those on the north side were left closed. The train hands change at that station. Before starting the train from the station, the conductor, who was on the south side of the train, saw that there were no passengers to enter, and then gave the usual call and signal to start. The brakemen boarded the train at their respective platforms and closed the gates after them. After it had started, the train proceeded on its way with no knowledge of what happened to Mr. B. Immediately after the train had passed, the injured man was seen lying upon the north side of the track. Excepting at the points where his limbs were crushed, his clothing was not disturbed or soiled. He had not been dragged by the train at all. It was next to impossible for a man to lie down, either voluntarily or unintentionally, so that the car wheel shall pass over his right wrist and left ankle. But it is easy enough to see that when the left foot has been placed, voluntarily or otherwise, so that a car wheel will crush it, the right hand may instinctively and involuntarily be thrust out and caught when the critical moment arrived to crush the foot. The injured man made a good recovery. He was found to be almost hopelessly bankrupt, and his creditors were eager for the insurance money. A portion of it he assigned, and trustee processes were served to cover much of it. One of the insurance companies that had not been served with a garnishee summons affected a settlement with the injured man by paying him about two-fifths of his claim. The creditors settled their assignments on payment of a trifle more than that. Whether the facts were as set forth by the insured or not, it was a terrible loss to him, and it is well that human nature is such that it will extend to him the deepest commiseration and pity without stopping to inquire too closely into causes and motives. SMS of Fairview, Pennsylvania, is a nailer by trade, but on account of work being slack, he had lately been engaged in knitting stockings on a small scale and peddling them through the country. This man obtained $26,000 accident insurance, and on the 16th of September, 1890, at near midnight, he sustained injuries which he said were caused as follows. I was approaching and was near to the end of the main platform to take the train when I was caught by the train striking my basket and knocking me down. The cars crushed my right foot. I had basket on one arm and book satchel on the other arm, had been peddling stockings and selling books. My right leg was crushed and afterward amputated. 
There was no eyewitness to the alleged accident. Investigation satisfied all parties interested in making it that the claim for indemnity under his insurance policies was not an honest one. But for the purpose of effecting a settlement, a small percentage of the amount claimed was paid to him by the several companies. $25,000 accident insurance in five different companies was written upon J.W.W. of York, Nebraska, and a few days later he went out hunting for game. His success is stated by himself as follows. I had shot a quail and was running and dropped the gun, being anxious to bag the quail. Gun was discharged by coming in contact with the ground as I received the shot instantaneously with the dropping of the gun. The discharge passed through my ankle. His foot was amputated four inches above ankle. This little town in Nebraska had quite an epidemic of this class of accidents at about this time. W.T., a milkman in Detroit, on the 27th of September, 1888, received an injury caused by the accidental discharge of a gun. Amputation above the wrist followed. He was insured in four companies. Investigation disclosed that he was running a small milk business, peddling milk, and that he was financially embarrassed. The amount which he expects to realize for the loss of a hand will be quite a fortune to him. J.S. of Washington, Indiana, aged 24 years, purchased a one-day accident ticket, March 8, 1888, and at about 11 o'clock at night, he went down to the railway and was hurt, as he says, by some substance projecting four or five feet from the side of a passing freight car in a freight train, which projecting substance struck and threw me down and my left hand fell on the rail and the wheels of the car ran over it and it had to be amputated. No one witnessed the occurrence, but the injured man was found lying down on the ground immediately afterward. So far as could be learned on careful inquiry, there was no unusual projecting substance on the train as alleged. E.J.S. was in London, Ontario, September 21, 1891, and late in the evening of that date he suffered a fearful mangling of both hands, which resulted in the amputation of the right hand above the wrist and of the middle and fourth fingers of the left hand. His story of how it happened is as follows. I was walking down a street near the railway. There was a train moving from the depot in the same direction as I was going. Part of the train had passed me when I heard footsteps behind me. I was immediately seized by some unknown person who passed his arm around my neck, garroted me, robbed me, and threw me under the passing train. I think I pushed myself back off the rails, and while my hands were still on the rails, the wheels of the train passed over them. I remember springing up and running, and I was sitting by the fence when parties came to me, I having called and shouted for help. A few days prior to this, he obtained insurance in five companies, amounting to over $20,000, some of it being short-term ticket insurance. Before the insurance companies had taken any steps toward an investigation, the story of assault and robbery, as alleged, was generally discredited. As a portion of the train had already passed before the assault was made, it was found to be an impossibility for so much to be accomplished before the remainder of the train could have wholly passed him. The train was not a lengthy one, and although running at a moderate rate of speed at the time, it was moving altogether too lively for him to have been thrown under it and escape with his life. It was learned that his hands had been for some time seriously impaired by disease. The claim which was presented under his insurance policies was at first disallowed on the ground of fraud through deliberate self-mutilation. 
but finally a compromise settlement was affected by paying little, if any, more than the cost of defending an action at law. WTS of Toronto, Ontario, a commercial traveler, sustained loss of left hand on the evening of May 3, 1895. His statement is, I went to the Union Station for the purpose of mailing a letter. The letter box for mailing letters on train is on the door or side of post office car. The train was about starting, and I was stepping forward to put the letter in the box when I tripped over an obstruction and fell with my left arm across the rail. The wheel of the car passed over it. The postal car was not in the station, but was out in the yard where no passenger had occasion or business to go. It was nine o'clock at night, and of course there were no immediate eyewitnesses in that locality to see just how it happened. The injured man was heavily overinsured, having taken out policies in eight accident insurance companies. Only circumstantial evidence could be obtained to discredit the claim, and a compromise settlement was effected, in variable sums, by the several companies. In all of the preceding cases, it will be observed that the bodily injury sustained has resulted in loss of hand or foot, and it becomes an interesting study to consider what relation this particular class of injuries bears to accident insurance. In this chapter, we have dealt only with cases wherein there was more or less reason to suppose that the injuries were intentionally self-inflicted, and therefore, at this time, we may narrow down the inquiry to a consideration from that standpoint of the group of injuries so classified. The enlargement of the benefits under accident policies in the manner indicated was not generally adopted by insurance companies until during the year 1887. It was first made a feature of annual policies only, but on examination of the loss experience under accident tickets, it was found that accidental bodily injuries resulting in amputation of an entire hand or foot, had occurred in ticket holders so seldom that it probably affected the total monetary loss to the companies very inconsiderably, if at all. It was then decided by one company at least to incorporate the same features in its insurance tickets. Less than four years was sufficient time to convince the company that the practice was not only disastrous to accident underwriting, but against public policy. In view of such results, it was eliminated from the tickets and has since been restricted to regular policies. In these four years, it was found that the company referred to was called upon to pay one-third of the principal sum insured under 33 insurance tickets for the loss of a left hand by each one so insured. For the loss of right hands, there were only four insurance tickets that had become claims during the same period of time. This is significant when we find that the tickets gave the insured as much indemnity for loss of his left as for his right hand. That there is greater liability to loss of left rather than of right hands in the general run of accidents has been clearly disproved by experience in writing practically the same kind of insurance but for small amounts upon large numbers of workingmen, including thousands of railway employees. This experience covered not only the same four years' time as did that of the ticket insurance, but also the subsequent four years and is still going on. This insurance is general and extends to accidents of occupation and to those of everyday life and activity as well. During eight years, it was found that 39 had sustained loss of left hand and 50 loss of right hand, the latter being largely in excess. 
Since the loss of limb feature has been abolished in the insurance tickets, it has been found that the amputation of hands and feet as the result of accidents to the holders of such tickets is of as rare occurrence as it was before such special insurance was written. These significant facts cannot be satisfactorily explained away, and they confirm the impression that there is no great moral hazard in writing short-term ticket insurance of the character indicated. End of Section 92 End of Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies An Authentic Record of Remarkable Cases by John B. Lewis and Charles C. Bombaugh